0: And his face was like the sun shining in full strength. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. But he laid his right hand on me, saying, Fear not, I am the first and the last, and the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys to death and Hades. Write, therefore, the things that you have seen, those that are, those that are, and those that are to take place after this. As for the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand, and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches.
1: Now, if you'll take your hymnal at this time and turn to number 547... Hymn number 547, I Stand Amazed in the Presence. And would you please join us in standing as we worship together. I stand amazed in the presence of Jesus the Nazarene And wonder how he could love me A sinner condemned unclean Oh, how marvelous, oh, how wonderful, and my song shall ever be. Oh, how marvelous, oh, how wonderful, is my Savior's love for me. For me it was in the garden, he prayed, not my will but thine. He had no tears for his own Grease my sweat drops of blood for mine Oh how marvelous, oh how Wonderful and my song shall ever Be, oh how marvelous, oh how Wonderful is my Savior's love For me, he took My sins and my sorrows, he made them his very own. He bore the burden to Calvary and suffered and died alone. Is my Savior's love for me when with the ransom and glory his face I last shall see Twill be my joy through the ages to sing of his love for me oh how marvelous oh how wonderful and my song Shall ever be oh how marvelous, oh how wonderful is my Savior's love for me. Baby seated.
2: If you have your Bible and want to turn with me to Romans chapter three, Romans chapter three. And I'll begin reading at verse one and read through verse twelve. And verse 12 is my text for this morning. but We'll read verses 1 through 12 in Romans chapter 3. And there the Bible says, Then what advantage has the Jew? Or what is the value of circumcision? Much in every way. To begin with, the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. What if some were unfaithful? Does their faithlessness nullify the faithfulness of God? By no means. Let God be true, though everyone were a liar, as it is written, that you may be justified in your words and prevail when you are judged. But if our unrighteousness serves to show the righteousness of God, what shall we say? That God is unrighteous to inflict wrath on us? I speak in a human way. By no means. For then, how could God judge the world? But if through my lie, God's truth abounds to his glory, why am I still being condemned as a sinner? And why not do evil that good may come? As some people slanderously charge us with saying, their condemnation is just. What then? Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. As it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside, together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. May God add his blessing to the reading of his truth. Let's pray together. Our Father and our God, we come this morning mindful of the fact that you are the creator and we are the creature. Father, we come realizing that you alone are worthy of worship. And we come into your presence with nothing but the blood of Jesus Christ to claim as our right to access. We realize that all of us our sinners, saved by your grace, and that it is only by your grace and the gift of faith that you have given that we may approach your throne, and we do so boldly. We pray, O oh Lord, your blessing upon this time this morning. We thank you for the privilege of being here, of being assembled as your church. Father, we thank you. That you have left for us your word, a perfect revelation of who you are, what you have done, what you are doing, and what you will do. And We ask this morning that you will open the eyes of our heart and that you'll give us a spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of Jesus Christ. That as we look into your word, we may apply that word to our hearts in order that we will not sin against you. We ask, O oh Lord, that. Everything that is said and done and thought in this time this morning might be pleasing to you and bring glory and honor to Jesus Christ, to God the Father, to God the Holy Spirit, in whose name we pray. Amen.
1: Number 514. When we all get to heaven. Sing the wondrous love of Jesus. Sing his mercy and his grace. In the mansions bright and blessed. Here prepare for us a place. When we all get to heaven. What a day of rejoicing that will be When we all see Jesus We'll sing and shout the victory While we walk the pilgrim pathway Clouds will overspread the sky But when traveling days are over Not a shadow, not a sign To heaven, what a day of rejoicing that will be when we all see Jesus. We'll sing and shout the victory. Let us then be true and faithful, trusting, serving every day. Just one glimpse of Him in glory. Will the tolls of life repay when we all get to heaven? What a day of rejoicing that will be when we all see Jesus. We'll sing and shout the victory onward to the price before us. Soon his beauty will behold Soon the pearly gates will open We shall tread the streets of gold When we all get to heaven What a day of rejoicing that will be When we all see Jesus We'll sing and shout the victory
2: If you have your Bibles, turn with me, if you will, to Romans chapter 3. Romans chapter 3. I saw a little sign the other day that said, taking a family vacation is just screaming at your kids in a different city. Having taken a few of those, I know that is sometimes the truth. And I thought about that and thought about all of the times that God has been with me like a parent trying to correct a child. Uh, you know, don't climb on that, get out of the mud, uh, don't get in the tree, don't speak like that to your sister. Uh, God does speak to us again and again and again, like a loving parent that He is, so that we might be corrected, and that we might walk in the way of obedience. Uh most of us however have trouble hearing him we're like that uh, disobedient child whose hearing is selective to my knowledge nothing in the bible is repeated as frequently or as forcefully as the words that sum up man's sinful nature we find an example here in romans chapter 3 verses 10 through 12 Particularly, verse 12, Psalm 14.2 and Psalm 53.2 is a question posed by the psalmist that formed the basis for the apostle's answer in verses 10 and 11. Verse 12, as a matter of fact, is a verbatim quotation from the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Hebrew Bible. Psalm 14.3 says, all have turned aside, they have together become corrupt, there is no one who does good, not even one. Psalm 53.3 almost exactly repeats that charge. It says, everyone has turned away, they have together become corrupt, there is no one who does good, not even one. Now, in Romans 3.12, we have that written out for us one more time. All have turned aside. Together, they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. You would think that we might begin to get the message at this point. I mean, think about it. If God says something once, we should listen to what he says very carefully because God only has to say something one time for it to be true, for it to be binding. But if he says the same thing twice, then we ought to give it our most intense attention. And what if he repeats himself a third time? Then surely we should stop what we're doing, focus our minds, and seize upon each individual word and memorize it and ponder the meaning of the saying intensely, attempting to apply the truth of God to the revelation of God's revelation to our lives. And yet we don't do this. And the reason we don't do it many times is because the revelation of God is too intense. It's too penetrating. It's too devastating for us to deal with. And so what man does even as Christians is to blandly admit that what God is saying is right and yet recasting it in less disturbing terms, something that's a little more palatable to our refined taste. And what many well-meaning people inevitably suggest today is that human goodness is essentially the same as divine goodness. And all that people really need to get into heaven is just a little bit of additional goodness. And that, added to their own effort, to their own uh, uh, accomplishments, will make up what they need to get into heaven. So it's just, just be a little bit better than the average person. And if you are, then you will rise to heaven. That is a very serious error. It is one that will bring eternal condemnation. It is an error that needs to be repudiated. And is that not what Psalm 14.3, Psalm 53.3 and Romans 3.12 is there to teach us? That we cannot attain to heaven no matter how much human goodness we have. That human goodness and godliness... Are two very opposite things. That no amount of human goodness will enable you to enter into the kingdom of God. See, God does not merely say that people fail to live up to his standard, although that's true. Uh, and it's one way of expressing uh, the nature of sin. Rather, he says, all have turned away. We have together become worthless. And there's no one who does good. Not even one. Uh, Look at the first phrase. All have turned aside. I said earlier when God says something more than once, we should pay the most careful attention to it. And that's what I want to do. With this verse, I want to take it one phrase at a time and look at what God is saying. And it begins with this, man's deviation, all have turned aside. Just two words in the Greek, one translated all, and the other is a past form of a verb that means to deviate, to wander, to depart from the right way. Now the right way is outlined for us very clearly In Romans chapter 1, it is to recognize God's eternal power and divine nature and then to glorify Him, thank Him, and worship Him. But it is precisely from that standard that man has deviated. Instead of seeking God and worshiping Him in thankful service, man suppresses the truth about God, goes his own way. And he invents false gods to take the place of the one true God. And as a result, man finds his intellect and his morals to be increasingly debased. And this indictment includes every human being. I, I, I told you a, a number of weeks ago that uh, Dr. R.G. Lee, one of the famous preachers of the Southern Baptist Convention of the 20th century, used to say, you have to get them lost before you can get them saved. That's what Paul is doing. He's getting everybody lost. All have turned aside. All men have deviated from God's standard. Every human being, it is inclusive. All have turned aside, expressed negatively at the end, not even one. One commentator has said of this, as respects well-doing, there is not one. As respects evil-doing, there is no exception. Everyone has turned aside. No one has walked in the right way. Paul's words not only draw our attention to Romans 1, where the departure of men and women from God's standard is very clearly spelled out, they also make us think of a well-known verse in the book of Isaiah, where Isaiah says, we all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. That's the problem. Not only has man not gone God's way, we've not even gone in ways marked out by other people. We have each gone in our own way. Consequently, each of us, is basically set against all others. And we pursue our well being and our desires to the neglect or the hurt of other people. That that's basically what the, the sin of racism is about that's talked about so much today. It is contrary to the gospel because it is a seeking of one's own desires and one's own interest at the expense of others because of skin color. And it's, of course, a sin. It always has been. But the prophet here tells us about the nature of the sin and its consequences. For as the man who loses his way cannot have any peace of mind, cannot have any security, so it is with the sinner. Uh, The sinner has lost his way. And all are sinners. We have no guide to help us. And unless the Holy Spirit comes and dwells within us, then we have no one to help. No one to guide us in the way. The second thing he talks about is man's decadence. Together, they have become worthless. Again, again, The phrase is very simple. One word that means all, and another word that is a past tense of a verb meaning useless or corrupt. Now, I hope you understand what we're talking about here is spiritually worthless, spiritually corrupt, spiritually turned aside. I emphasize that because sometimes people hear these and say, well, then you mean that That men can't make great advancements in mathematics or, or biology or computer technology. No, no, no. That's not what it means at all. And it does not mean that men cannot be good to other men in a human way. What Paul is saying here is that there are none who can please God. As far as pleasing God is concerned, they have become worthless. They've become corrupt. Remember that Jesus talked about his followers being the salt of the earth. But he said if the salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It's no longer good for anything but to be thrown out and trampled by men. What do you do with something that becomes corrupt or useless? You throw it away and you start over again. Uh, And again, this is from the standpoint of pleasing God with their lives. Men can be great philanthropists. They can give millions of dollars to worthy causes. They can be very good citizens. But they are worthless from the standpoint of God's standard of righteousness. When you stand before God on the day of judgment... All of your philanthropy, all of your good works will do nothing. You will simply stand there worthless, completely corrupt. And again, all of this forms the doctrine of total depravity. And total depravity does not mean that man is as wicked as he can possibly be. Not at all. It means from the standpoint of salvation... Apart from the grace of God, man is worthless. And all of his works are worthless. As, Paul, as the, the prophet said, all of our righteousness is like filthy rags. All of human goodness, all of human righteousness is no good. It will not avail you anything when you stand before the great God of heaven and he decides whether or not you will enter the kingdom. But then we come to man's depravity, the final phrase, no one does good, not even one. Very, very straightforward. No one does good. No one. That verse takes me back to the Old Testament where in Genesis chapter 6, there is a very similar phrase. It says, The Lord saw how great man's wickedness on the earth had become, and that every inclination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil all the time. That verse says that not only men and women do not do good as God counts goodness, they do precisely the opposite. The thoughts of their heart are evil continually. Genesis 6 5 teaches that sin is internal, it rises from the thoughts of From the inclination of the heart, it is perverse. It affects every inclination that we have. So that our deeds are evil and it is continuous. Man does that all of the time. I suppose there are some people who would look at those statements and say, well, you know, they're very pessimistic. And after all, Paul was a Pharisee and they were very legalistic. And Moses, well, Moses was the lawgiver. What do you expect from him? So, what about Jesus? What about Jesus, loving and compassionate, and 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 would never ever condemn anyone? What did Jesus say about the gravity of human sin? Actually, he said more than anyone else. He talked of a man as salt that's lost its savor. He talked of man as a corrupt tree that was bound to produce corrupt fruit. He said that men were evil. He said in Luke chapter 11, you being evil, know how to give good things to your children. On one occasion, he lifted his eyes towards heaven and talked about Matthew chapter 12, this being an evil and adulterous generation, or again, a wicked generation. In a great passage uh, that deals with what constitutes purity and impurity, Jesus in Mark chapter 7 made the startling statement that out of the heart proceed adulteries, evil thoughts, all kinds of things. He spoke about Moses having to give, give special permissive commandments to men because of the hardness of their hearts And when the rich young ruler approached him saying, Good master, Jesus said to him, There's none good but God. Jesus compared men, even the leaders of his country, to wicked servants in a vineyard. He exploded in condemnation at the scribes and the Pharisees who were considered to be among the best, most religious men of their generation. He made a fundamental statement about man's depravity in John chapter 3 when he said, that which is born of the flesh is flesh. He saw in man an unwillingness to respond to the grace of God. John chapter 5 when he said, you will not come to God. Chapter 42 he said, you do not have the love of God. Chapter 43 of John 5 he said, you receive me not. Verse 47, you believe me not. Those things occur repeatedly in the Gospel of John. Jesus was not at all deceived about man's condition. He knew exactly what it was. He said the world's works are evil. John chapter 7, verse 7. Verse 19, he said, none of you keeps the law. John 8, 21, he says, you will die in your sins. John 8, 23, he said, you are from beneath In verses 38 and 44, he said, you are of your father the devil, who is a murderer and a liar. He said, you are not of God, you are not my sheep, and he who hates me hates my father. That's the way Jesus spoke to the leaders of his day. Again, the most religious people that there were around, considered to be the best of the best of the best, the cream of the crop. I mean, he's not talking to politicians here, essentially. He's talking to religious leaders, teachers, pastors, seminary professors. If he said that about them, what about everybody else? Following another line, he said that man was blind, utterly unable to know God, uh, to understand him. He said no one could know him except those whom the Father revealed to them. He compared men to the blind, leading the blind. He said this is the condemnation that men love the darkness rather than the light because their deeds were evil. He said that the only one, that only the one who has been reached by grace can walk not in darkness but have the light of life. He emphasized in John chapter 3 to one of the most religious men alive of that day, that he needed a birth from above if he could even see the kingdom of God and be rescued from his condition of mis- misery. Even in the Lord's Prayer, a prayer he said that we should pray continuously, he said, Forgive us our transgressions, our debts. Jesus said, The sick are the people who need a position. And mankind is sick, worthless, corrupt, have turned aside from God's way. Jesus said that we are people that are burdened and heavy laden and we need to come to Him for relief. Actually, after you read the words of Jesus about the condition of man, you'd almost say that Paul's words are mild. I mean, Jesus had a far more pessimistic view, it appears, of mankind than Paul did. But Paul's words are not mild, of course. They are devastating. Why does God speak to us in these terms? Why does God say these things about mankind? And the answer is obvious. If we don't see our true condition, if we don't stop trying to excuse ourselves if we don't stop trying to lower God's standard, then we open ourselves up to judgment. Do you understand? Do you grasp that to enter heaven, you have to have a perfect righteousness? You can't get there without it. That's what's required to get to heaven. Not just to teach Sunday school for a while or preach from a pulpit for a few years. No. Entrance into heaven requires perfect righteousness. To love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, and all your strength every moment of your existence. Does that throw you into despair? Great. Because that is what leads to grace. For only Jesus Christ has a perfect righteousness. And God will impute that perfect righteousness of Christ to you. When you believe on Him. That is what justification is all about. It is only by grace that you can receive that righteousness. Grace, grace, God's grace. Grace that will pardon and cleanse within. Grace, grace. God's grace. Grace that is greater than all our sin. We have that grace in Jesus Christ. All of mankind have turned aside. All of mankind has become worthless. No one does good, not even one. We have all sinned and come short of the glory of God. It is only by repentance of sin and believing in the finished work of Jesus Christ that we may avail ourselves of the grace that pardons, the grace that cleanses within. Let's pray. Our Father and our God,